morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Tommy Tomlinson, whose new book, The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America, was published in January. Having written two novels with what the publisher refers to as plus-size heroines, I was eager to talk to Tommy about this remarkable book. I spoke with Tommy when he was in Winston-Salem for Bookmark's Movable Feast, and although my microphone wasn't working that day, his was. So you'll hear me asking questions here back in the studio, and you'll hear Tommy answering in the live recording. Tommy, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you very much, Charlie. I'm glad to be here. Let's talk first about your background as a writer. You spent 23 years working for a newspaper. What was the life of a reporter like when you started in the business, and how has the business changed in the years since? Well, I came in at a really flush time for newspapers. People were hiring a lot. Um, my, my first job, I was at the Augusta Chronicle in Augusta, Georgia for about three years. And then I came to the Charlotte Observer at a time when they were building bureaus out in the cities right around Charlotte, the, the sort of bedroom communities. Um, and they were filling those up and we were building, they were starting daily, daily newspapers in those cities. The Observer was doing like little add-on yeah. daily papers in like Rock Hill, South Carolina, Gastonia, North Carolina, those places. And that's where I started out with The Observer in this big rush of hiring people. So I, I came in at a time when newspapers just couldn't bring in enough people because there was so much money coming in. Circulation was really high. The, the Observer had just won a Pulitzer Prize for covering the PTL scandal. And so I was there at sort of the, the golden hour, so to speak. For newspapers, and unfortunately, my 30 years or, or so since then that I've worked in the media, the the influence of newspapers and the economic uh, power that newspapers have had have, have all dwindled fairly substantially since then. It's really it's really tough to be in the newspaper business now. You talk about the PTL scandal, and I certainly remember when that story was breaking. I was an undergraduate at Davidson College, and I had friends who worked on The Observer and who spent weeks and even months really delving into that story and spending the time it took to find out everything there was to know. Do reporters have that kind of time to spend on stories today? At some places, I mean, uh, but they're, they're few and far between. You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, lots of the Wall Street Journal, big papers like that still have the resources to do that a lot. Other papers really have to make tough decisions. Do you do that? Do you send somebody off on something for six months? And then if you do that, what are you not going to be doing? That's the trade-off now for papers like The Observer and, and other papers of that size, is that if you pull somebody away to do a big project, even if it's really worth doing, you're sacrificing a lot. And so there's some really tough calls that have to be made there. You worked for quite a while as a sports journalist. Do you feel like you were treated differently in that work because of your size? No, because there are a lot, of, I hate to say it, there are a lot of overweight, pasty white guys in the sports writing business. You know, if I went into a locker room, I wouldn't necessarily stand out amongst the writers. Certainly I look different than the athletes, but I don't look too much different than the average 
sports writer. This is obviously a very personal book. In fact, when I left the house, I told my wife, you know, I'm going to interview Tommy. I feel like I already know him because I've read this book. Um, and we learned a little bit about the setup of your book in the subtitle, but uh, tell us about it. Tell us what the basic setup of, of this novel, this book is. So it's uh, sort of a, a memoir about my struggle to lose weight over my whole life and how I got to be so big. At the beginning of the book, uh, which it begins around New Year's Eve 2014, I weigh 460 pounds. And my sister has just died of complications from her own weight problems. And so it was a very low point in my life where I couldn't figure out whether I had the willpower or the means or the strategy or any of those things to figure out how to get in shape. And I could see a very limited future in front of me. I was 50 at the time. And as I write in the book, guys like me usually don't make it to 60. And so it was a moment for me where I had to really decide to try to get better. And as I went along the way, I discovered that the how is never enough. You have to figure out the why. If you're massively overweight like me, you kind of have to figure out how you got that big in the first place to help solve the riddle of how to get smaller. Again, and that's sort of what this book is about. Would you read us an excerpt from the book? I'll read a, a section uh, that sort of talks about the world I grew up in, which was uh, South Georgia in the 70s, um, the best food in the world and some of the worst food for you. So uh, I'll read you just a, a few paragraphs. Um, everybody in my family was an artist when it came to Southern food. The women cooked the most, but the men could swing a meal now and then. Daddy's specialty was chicken and dumplings, with the dumplings made from crumbled up soda crackers. The show of the year was the family reunion at Uncle Ted and Aunt Estelle's house in Nahanta, Georgia, which is known, if it's known, for once hosting the World Armadillo Olympics. <laughs> Uncle Ted worked in the pulp mills and played country blues on his guitar. Aunt Estelle, my dad's sister, was rough as a cob. From the time I was about 10, every time we showed up, she'd take one look at me and holler, you ain't lost no weight. And then she would call us to the kitchen where we would add our dishes to heaven's buffet. Most of the time, the center, the center of the table was a platter of fried chicken piled so high it would topple if you pulled out the wrong leg. There'd be pork chops, turkey and dressing, beef stew, maybe venison if it was hunting season. Then the white food group, mashed potatoes, potato salad, deviled eggs, rice and gravy, biscuits and cornbread shining with butter. And then the vegetables, Crowder peas and Kentucky Wonder pole beans, crookneck squash and fried okra, turnip greens and salty pot liquor, sliced tomatoes picked five minutes ago. This paragraph is as close as I will ever come to writing porn. <laughs> there was no way to get all the goodness on one plate. Anywhere my family gathered, a normal meal was two helpings, three if you hadn't tried the meatloaf. If you stopped after one, somebody would ask if you were sick. After supper was a time of groaning and unbuckled belts, time to sit around and sulk, Uncle Ted would say. The women would clean up and gather around the kitchen table. The men would go outside and lean on the bed of somebody's truck, smoking cigarettes or pinching off jaws of day's work tobacco. 
as a kid, I had a ticket to both worlds, the women and the men, and I'd hang around the fringes listening to the stories. Sometimes the hero of the outside version was the villain of the inside version. Either way, the stories always had pace, suspense, humor, and a lesson at the end. I'm the only one out of my family who makes a living telling stories, but in many ways, I'm the worst storyteller in my family. I've spent my life trying to rework my family's magic tricks to take that sound and that feeling and turn it into words on a page. My kinfolk, without knowing it, created a storyteller. And without intending to, they also created a fat boy. You write that wonderful description of the spread on a Southern dinner table and talk about it as porn, but to me, it's... It really poetry. It's so beautifully written. And it reminds me of when I was a teenager and I used to work in the hayfields up in the mountains of northwestern North Carolina. We would come in and there would be a big spread on the table. And if you only ate one plate full of food, it was kind of rude. Yeah. And I think for, in my family, we, we grew up without much money. And it became, it was such a symbol of wealth for us. Because we didn't have much else, but we could put a fantastic meal on the table. And so there was, it carried, not only just did it taste good, it carried all this symbolic weight with You write these heartbreaking scenes about something most of us probably never think about, and that's simply what it's like to negotiate a world that just wasn't designed for you. I'm thinking in particular of a, a trip that you took to New York City, and the way you describe what you have to do ahead of time, it's almost like you're exploring an alien planet. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, this, this particular trip I, I write about is, uh, first of all, um, I, I'm planning to meet uh, somebody for breakfast, and I have to take the subway to get there. And the subway is sort of unfamiliar to me. I've been to New York, but I'm not a veteran subway rider. And um, I'm on there, and I'm having to stand, and I'm holding on to the pole, and I'm looking around me, trying to decide if I fall, where can I fall and do the least damage? And I'm not really worried about myself. It would be embarrassing if I fell. I'm worried about landing on somebody. And there's, you know, an older woman who's just right next to me, basically in a seat. And if I fall on her, I'm going to crush her. And so I'm, I'm panicking a little bit, trying to keep my balance, uh, trying to figure out a strategic place where I can land if, if that happens. So then when I get to the, um, the place where I'm going, this little diner that I'm going to, the night before I'd already scouted it out. I looked on Google for photos of the interior so I could figure out if there was a comfortable place for me to sit. If there are booths and there's, and the table is like uh, fixed you know, to the floor, it's gonna be hard for me to wedge in there. If there's a bar or a counter and the bar stools are bolted down, that's gonna be difficult for me too. Tables are best, but even a table can be fraught if the chairs are rickety or if the arms are too narrow. So I'm, I'm sort of scouting that place like a gangster might to figure out a safe place to be when I get in there. And when my, my friend, who was my book agent, um, came in and sat down and asked me what I'd been thinking about, that's what I told him. Yeah. And that sort of became, in some ways, the genesis for this book. I think that scene serves as a reminder to a lot of readers about all that we take for granted. And we take for granted that the world is, is designed for us to 
fit through doorways and to sit in restaurants and to ride on subways. Uh, and the truth is that for a lot of people and for a variety of different reasons, uh, the design that's out there is not the design that works for them. That's right. Yeah. Places like, you know, um, airplanes obviously are very difficult for guys like me. I love to fly. I love the experience of flying, but getting into that seat, having asked for the seatbelt extension, being kind of crammed in there, worried about the people I'm next to, am I affecting them? All those sort of things make flying an anxious thing for me. You write a really insightful explanation of addiction at one point. You say, this is the terrible catch-22. The thing that soothes the pain prolongs it. The thing that brings me back to life pushes me closer to the grave. Do you think obesity in many cases is just one branch of an epidemic of addiction in this nation? Sure, I do. Uh, I think the medical community, there's differing opinions on that, whether yeah. eating is, is classified as an addiction or not. But the fact is that about 40% of the people in America sort of qualify as obese under the under federal guidelines. So something's going on there. Yeah. Uh, people are eating a lot. And I think for some of us, certainly, you know, when I, I've never done hard drugs, yeah. but when I hear people who are heroin addicts, or people like that talk about the feeling, that euphoric feeling of, of taking in the drug and then the crash that comes afterward and that aching desire to have it again. Well, that sounds like me having double cheeseburgers. Right. You know, I, I get the same, that same rush of dopamine or whatever it is, right. that, that euphoric feeling. I have that same crash when it's over and then have that same nearly instantaneous desire to do it again. If that's not clinically addiction, I'm not sure what to call it. There's so much to like about this book, but one of the more practical, less emotional factors is something I see in a lot of successful narratives. And it kind of gets back to what we were talking about just a minute ago. And that is that they show the reader an unfamiliar world. Even if that world is just their own world, but viewed through somebody else's eyes. How did you attack the task of putting us into your world? Well, when I set out to do this book, I thought, if I'm going to do it, I need to do it right. And that involved telling stories about how I see the world, how I, how I approach it every day, things that, as you said, that I might see that you might take for granted, um, all those things. And um, part of it for me was making sure I, didn't, I held myself to the same standard I would hold if I was writing about somebody else, which would mean to write with empathy, but to tell the truth. And so there are stories in here that are really unflattering to me. Um, there are stories that kind of make me look bad. I, I tell people sometimes that at the, the end of the book, you might like me less than you do at the beginning. <laughs> you know. But I wanted to make sure and be honest about those stories. Because I know that I do see the world differently than other people because of my size. And I approach it differently and people approach me differently. And I want to make sure that they understood all that in the course of the book. You write, I've spent a lifetime telling other people's stories. My weight is the biggest story of my life, but I haven't told it. What finally gave you the courage to tell that story now? Because it's a, it's a tough story. It's not, uh, it's not always flattering. Two things. So that, that moment I spoke about earlier when I had breakfast with my agent and I talked about my weight and he told me at that moment, he said, well, that's a book you ought to write. Well, I was afraid to do it. And so I didn't do it for three years. I let three years pass by. I did other stuff that I was working on. Then in 2014, 
I did a story for ESPN the magazine on a guy named Jared Lorenzen. He was a, had been a quarterback at the University of Kentucky, a star SEC player. Went on to play in the pros for the New York Giants. He was a backup, but he won a Super Bowl ring as a backup for the Giants. He was always known in his career as the biggest quarterback in the world. Um, he played uh, 300 pounds or thereabouts for most of his career. He threw left-handed, his fans called him the hefty lefty. <laughs> so I knew about him at the time, but then I encountered him again in 2014. And by that time, he'd been out of the NFL for several years. Um, and I saw him at the end of a Sports Center episode one night. They always, at the end of every episode, they do a little thing about the lighter side of sports. And they showed a clip of him playing for a minor league football team on basically a dirt field in Kentucky. His jersey was way too small for him. He was still the quarterback, but by that time he was clearly around 400 pounds, just this massive guy. And so I saw that and I immediately thought, um, there's a story I can tell about him. And so I looked him up and I tracked him down and I said, Jared, I'd like to tell your story because I don't think anybody can tell it as well as I could. And so we bonded pretty immediately once we got together over things like where to buy clothes and the kind of snacks we liked and all that sort of thing. And so as I wrote that story about him in the summer of 2014, I began to see a path to write my story. And I began to think that it might be worth telling. And so as I finished up the story on Jared, um, I called my agent and I said, I want to write a proposal for you on this thing that we've been putting off for three years. I wrote it and he sold it in two weeks. Wow. And so that was November of 2014. And then a month after that, my sister died. Um, and that sort of blew a hole in our family. And I could see my future, as I said, in front of me. And so that gave me, you know, the, the book contract gave me a, obviously a motivation to write something about the struggle. Brenda's death um, gave me huge motivation to do something about it. It's one of the things I think is remarkable about the book is the, the timing of it. You are writing the book and at the same time you are going through this uh, not just physical but very emotional journey uh, in terms of trying to lose weight and, and understand why you got the way you were. Yeah, it was, you know, we talked about this beforehand, my agent, my editor and I, um, I told him, you know, I've never really had any sustained success at losing weight before. It's possible that we're going to get to the end of this book, and I haven't succeeded. So what do we do then? And we all talked about it, and we agreed that the book was really not about weight loss as much as it was about the struggle of being an overweight person right. out in the world. Having said that, I still really desired to lose weight during the sure. book because I wanted people to see to have some hopefulness along the yeah, way. Yeah. And so that's, so the book kind of follows two tracks. One track is sort of an overarching memoir of my life. And then along the way, you see how I do month to month over the course of a year, the ups and downs of that. And at the end of each chapter, you uh, write down, uh, you know, your weight at the beginning of the month, your weight at the end of the month, uh, and how much weight you lost or in some cases, didn't lose that month. And I have to say, as I was reading the book, I found myself, you know, covering up those numbers as I turned to that last page because I, I, I didn't want to have the, it was a spoiler alert kind of situation. Uh, but it became sort of a, an emotional uh, moment to uncover those. 
Yeah, and that's oh, one thing I, I, as I've been talking about the book, I've tried to be a little coy about how much weight I lost during the course sure. of the book and that sort of thing, because I want people to follow along and see how it goes from month to month and not know in advance. You know, it's yeah. not the it's not the be all and end all of the book. It's more than about the numbers, but the numbers do matter. And I think the way it plays out, as you say, gives the reader hope, but it also tells you, you know, there are no miracles out there. No, no. There, you know, one of the things that I discovered the hard way over the course of my life is that the vast majority of these diet plans, these, you know, ones where they sell a lot of books that are on TV shows and that on TV commercials, that sort of thing. Many of those work in the short term, like if you have 10 pounds to lose, but if you have 200 pounds to lose, it's never going to be just about the how. You have to figure out why you got there in the first place. And that to me is what most of this book is about. Our readers probably got a sense of this from the piece that you read, but you do a great job of infusing your narrative with humor, um, you know, even in places where it could be kind of dark and kind of bleak. Is that something you do in your own life? Is humor a defense mechanism for you? I've always been one of the funny kids in the class. Mm-hmm. And I, somebody asked me, you know, where did that come from? And I think it probably did come from needing something that people found appealing in me. Right. You know, I never thought I was good looking. I was always the overweight kid in the class, you know, sometimes picked on for those reasons. But humor deflects a lot of that. Yeah. So if you can be funny, you know, you can fit in in a way that it's hard to if you're not. So then instead of being the fat kid, you're the funny kid. Right. Some and both. Yeah, depending on how people are feeling that day. Yeah, yeah. You write about when you get to high school finding your tribes, and I have a child who's used that exact same language about uh, finding the people they felt comfortable with when they got to college. How did the people who were closest to you, who knew you best, did they treat you differently as a result of your size? Well, I think the people who I gravitated to were people for whom it didn't matter. You know, the people who never made a fat joke about me or never, um, you know, made fun of me about it and always sort of made accommodations for me along the way, always made sure there was room for me when we were going somewhere, always, you know, didn't let me get too far behind if we had a, you know, a long walk or something like that, those sorts of things. And so those are the people the people who just treated me like they treated anybody else mm-hmm. are the people that I think I ended up sort of gravitating to. Now, in the course of the book, I part of what I did is I sent all those people sort of questionnaires because oh. um, I wanted to know what they thought about me when I wasn't around yeah. and when my friends were around but I wasn't. Did they talk about me and what did they talk about? And I heard from a lot of them who had you know, great concerns about my size and whether I was gonna get better and you know, what that would mean for my lifespan and all those sorts of things. But it's not something that we talked about face-to-face much. And so it was, I sort of suspected that's the kind of stuff they talked about, but it was also revelatory to me to know that they were that deeply concerned about me when I wasn't around. And how did they react when you said to them, okay, now I'm going to write this book about myself and I want you to have the sort of candor with me that you didn't necessarily have with me at the time? It was a mixed bag. Some people were really open about it. A few just didn't want to do it at all. So I probably emailed 30 or so people and I'd say maybe two-thirds of them 
responded in one way or another, and the other third just said, I just don't feel comfortable doing this. And then I had longer interviews with my wife and my mom, because they're two of the, the key people in my life. I had a similar sort of experience years ago. I wrote a memoir about my mother who died when I was two years old. And when I had my own two-year-old, I started to realize that my lifetime of saying, oh, it doesn't really matter, I didn't know her very well, was really just a lifetime of denial. And so one of the things I did in writing about her was to go back and, and talk to people who had known her in her short life. And uh, you know, it was the same kind of thing where people who maybe hadn't felt comfortable talking about it at the time, somebody who died so young and tragically, uh, you know, had a chance to sort of open up and say things they'd never said. Oh, good. A, a real role model, role, role model for me in thinking about this was a book called The Night of the Gun by a guy named David Carr. He was the New York Times media critic for a long time. He died a couple of years ago. He, in his 20s, he was a drug addict. And he went back and re-reported a lot of his early life that he didn't remember uh, and talked to the people who were around him back then. And when I read that book, I thought that's a really good way to to approach doing a memoir. And so I tried to do some of that for my book. You have a great quote about the writing life. You say, I've often told people that one reason I became a writer is I don't really know what I think about something until I sketch it out on the page. Other than this book, how has your writing life helped you process your real life? Well, certainly I do, every night I do like a journal mm -hmm. or something. And as I write that out, and sort of describe what, I, what happened to me during the day, I will have insights, which I think just by the act of writing, um, that come to me in a flash that I had not thought about during the day, but somehow in the, in the act of writing it out, I, I come to it. And that's happened to me virtually every story I've ever written. It's why I tell writers not to worry about having it all planned out and thought out before yeah. you start, because a lot of it you won't know until you're actually in it, and it will just come to you as you're writing. You're like, where did that come from? Well, it came from that process of sitting down and letting the work sort of flow out of you. And sometimes things are going to flow out of you that you didn't even know were in there. And so I, I've come to, to believe in that process and depend on it to sort of discover what I think as I write. Yeah, yeah I'm exactly the same way. I find that things come surprisingly when I'm working. And for years and years, I thought that I always needed to have a pen in my hand or, or a keyboard at my fingertips, that there was something about the tactile engagement that was sort of freeing up those ideas. Uh, and then recently, we have a, a friend who's a three-year-old who comes and spends one afternoon a week with us, and I always tell him a story at nap time. And I'll just say, what do you want a story about? And he'll say, I want a story about a talking tree, or I want a story about a table that flies. And I start telling him a story. And I've found that I've been able to sort of develop those muscles to work without the tactile engagement because I never know what's going to happen to the story, uh, but it always goes someplace. That's great. You've had good luck in your life and you've had bad luck in your life. And one of the pieces of bad luck that you write about is how you ended up with a voice that sounds like the voice that you have. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. When I was 29, uh, I was diagnosed with throat cancer. Um, uh, as my doctor said at the time, Whenever there's any disease, anybody gets any disease, there's a breakdown of the reasons people get it. You know, for, for throat cancer, most often it's if you're a smoker. Uh, next would be if you're an alcoholic. Um, there's several other reasons, but always at the bottom of everyone, there's like two or 3% that's just other, that they don't know the reason, and I was other. And so um, I was faced with a choice. 
uh, the, the, after seeing several doctors about this. Um, radiation treatments, I could have had uh, some pretty significant radiation treatments that would have preserved the voice I had, um, but the odds of it actually getting all the cancer were like in the 70% range. Or I could have throat surgery, which, which um, meant the removal of a big chunk of my voice box. That would guarantee to get rid of all the cancer, but it, they could not guarantee that I would have a voice yeah. at the end of it. And so obviously as a reporter, it's very important to have a voice, but I wanted to have the best chance of survival. So I opted for the surgery, and I spent 17 days in the hospital with a tracheostomy tube, not knowing if I'd be able to talk again. And that moment when they took out the tube and they covered up the little hole, they asked me to say something, and I just kind of croaked out, hey, you know, that was a great moment in my life. And it also, um, surprisingly for me, turned out in some ways to be good for my career. Um, with a, I, I was left with this voice that I have, which is not only raspy, but very, it's not very powerful. I can't yell across a room. Yeah. And so when I was in a situation in a crowd to do reporting, I couldn't really yell over the crowd. So I'd have to pull somebody aside and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And what I discovered was those conversations were almost always better than the ones in a crowd. When, they, when you have to get close to somebody and have a more intimate conversation, there's always better information that comes out of that. And so in some ways, I think that made me into the reporter that I became was having to work around the limitations of my voice. I talk to students a lot about writing. I was a children's playwright for a lot of years. And one of the things I tell them is that it's actually easier to write something if you have boundaries, if you have restrictions. It's easier to write a sonnet than if somebody says, just write something or just write a poem. I also found that when I was writing a newspaper column and it had to fit a certain space every time. And so you just learn to fit your thoughts into that space. You talk about being a newspaper columnist and of being a columnist, you wrote, anything you write that matters enough to be loved will also be hated. As a novelist, I can pretty much ignore angry reviews on you know Goodreads or Amazon, but you haven't always had that luxury. Can you talk a little bit about this aspect of your writing life, the the reactions that you get from readers, and sometimes the reactions that are not necessarily complimentary? Sure, I mean, you know, part of being the local columnist is you're you need to be provocative. You need to make strong arguments in favor or against something, or have strong opinions. And when I did that, I knew that I was going to get blowback. Um, but I'll tell you, it also taught me a great deal of perspective in that. Um, so I would get, I would write a column and people would write in, they would often say something about my weight or something like that. They didn't think of anything else to say, but they also said just real terrible things, the things that you would say terrible things to anybody. But here's something I learned about that. So this, back in the early days when I was doing a column, this was before email was so prevalent the way that people would most often contact me was they'd, co they'd call. And so I'd come in every day and there would always be voicemail messages. Mm -hmm. Now the paper usually landed on their doorstep at six o'clock. So if I had a voicemail from like 6.01 a.m., you know, nobody's calling at 6.01 to tell you how much they loved your work, right? And so it would always be somebody who was just blowing, you know, just heat through the, yeah. the phone. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, those people would leave their phone number. And when they did, I always called them back. 90% of the time I called them back 
the conversation would go like this. They'd say, hello, and I'd say, um, hey, this is Tommy from the paper. And they'd go, oh, man, I am so sorry. <laughs> you know, my kids were driving me crazy this morning. The car wouldn't start. I don't like my job. You know, my husband and I got in an argument or something, and I was just mad at the world. And then I saw your column, and that made me matter, and I called you. And I, I'd end up, the vast majority of those times, having like a cordial conversation yeah, yeah. with those people over the phone. And what it taught me was that even though some people really did have constructive criticism, the people who really hated it, it was almost always about them and not about me. Yeah. And I've, I've learned to hear criticism through that filter over the years, and that has made my life much more tolerable, especially when, you know, like, you know, you're a fat guy and people say something to you on the street. I always realize it's not about me, it's not yeah. about them. That would have been useful information for me as a kid, yeah. um, but, but I didn't have it, but now I do. Your chapter on fast food goes way beyond extolling the virtues of the Big Mac. You talk about fast food as companionship. What do you mean by that? What I meant was, um, and what I mean is, that for a lot of people who are lonely or you know desolate or whatever in their lives, um, a, a, a meal at a fast food restaurant can often be a little connection to the outside world. I would have days where I would go through the, you know, I'd be at home doing something and I'd just feel lonely. My, li- my wife would be off at work or something and, and I'd just need a little companionship and so I'd go get a burger in the drive through lane at Wendy's. You always end up talking to somebody, yeah. a cashier or something, and you see a couple of people and you're just out in the world. Uh, the next time you go to a fast food place, um, take a look around the parking lot. There will always be five or six people in their cars eating. Yeah. And those are people who, they, there's some shame involved. They don't want to be seen inside the restaurant because of their size or because of what they ordered. You know, they might have ordered a really big order or something like that, but they just needed to get out in the world a little bit. And so I always tell myself to have compassion for those folks because I I was one of them. You write, a lot of the time, because we haven't loved ourselves, we don't think others will love us. Is it possible to separate one's own self-worth from the value that others place on us Um, or to see ourselves through the eyes of those who love us? I mean, my first question is, you know, how do you see yourself through other people's eyes? And my, and my second question, I guess, is how much has your wife affected the way that you see yourself? So it's, it's been difficult for me over the years to, to reconcile the person I often saw inside myself and what other people saw. You know, I, I've had a successful career. Um, I've had lots of people who love me and cared for me along the way, lots of great friends. But I've always seen my weight as this one big hurdle that I couldn't get over. And I, I didn't feel like I was a sort of fully realized person until I could tackle this one big thing in my life. And so I always felt like I've fallen short as a person. Um, and I, no matter how much other people seem to like me, um, I couldn't find a way to really like myself that much until I started tackling this head on. My wife has been the key person in all this for me. We've been married 20 years now. And um, from the moment we've been together, she has lovingly, gently 
um, nudged me to become a better, healthier person without ever nagging about it, without ever standing over me and hectoring me or anything. She has slowly just sort of, you know, pushed just an inch at a time me to be better and better and better. And without her in my life, I, first of all, I honestly don't know if I'd be here because she has made my life healthier and better in so many ways. But I certainly don't think I'd have the happiness that I have in my life now because, you know, she is the most obvious person I'm living for. And that's, um, that's a big motivating factor for me. I think if I could share just one thought from this book with our listeners and with other readers, it would be this. You say, and I'm quoting, what I want you to understand more than anything else is that telling a fat person eat less and exercise is like telling a boxer don't get hit. You want to expand on that for us? Sure. So, you know, whenever uh, I talk about this or whenever somebody wants to give me advice uh, about weight loss or anything, they just... They just, a lot of people will just say, well, why don't you just eat less and exercise? Which is true as far as it goes, and it's obvious advice. It's not like I hadn't thought of that myself. But it, it does not account for the opponents in the ring. You know, if you tell a boxer don't get hit, well, that's great advice, but then you actually have to get out there and fight. And anybody who fights is going to get hit. Anybody who steps out in the world is gonna be faced with not only their own demons, right? Their own battles with self-worth and and all those things that are inside themselves, but a world that um, bombards you with advertisements for food and drink and connects it so deeply with love and fellowship and good times. Um, a world where, you know, portion sizes are getting bigger all the time. You know, at the movie theater nearest my house, a small Coke is 32 ounces. So there's no world where a quart should be the small portion, but it is. And so and all these things are conspiring and sort of colluding to make it really, really difficult to extend the metaphor to not get hit if you walk out in the world as a, as a large person. So yes, eating less and exercising is the key, but it's, it's, it's not nearly enough to just in and of itself, to make things work. Not long after I finished reading your book, I had dinner with a friend who confided in me on a totally separate subject that he he hates himself for what he perceives within himself as a prejudice against people who are morbidly obese or greatly overweight. And I immediately told him, I've got a book you have to read. Uh, it's going to change your life. Uh, do you think that your story and the way you tell it will help people chip away at that prejudice? I think so. So I was at a book reading last weekend, I guess. And there's a guy in the audience who said, oh, this is well and good. But I sat next to a fat guy on the airplane the other day, and he was all in my area, and I was really annoyed. What do I tell that guy? And I said, well, the first thing you should tell yourself and remember yourself is that he hates being in that spot as much as you do, yeah. even more. He's embarrassed and ashamed to be there. He's not trying to be in your way. He's not trying to offend you or whatever. He's just trying to live his life the best he can as well. And that the things that are going through his head, I guarantee you are worse than what's going through your head in the moment. And I said, you know, other than that, the advice I would give you was to treat him like I would hope you would treat everybody else and that is to be your kindest self around that person. Um, I think it's important 
I think part of what I hope this book does is not only speak to people who are overweight and trying to deal with it, but to speak to the people who are around them and who care about them and who might just encounter them every day, to say, here's what's in their heads and here's the struggles they are trying to overcome. Maybe this will help you understand their lives. Not so that you can tell, give them advice or whatever, but so that you can just see, spend a, a moment in their shoes and see what that's like. And so I think and hope there is some value to that in this book. I think you hit the nail on the head when you say put yourself in someone else's shoes. To me, there's kind of an Atticus Finch aspect to this book in that when we do take the opportunity to see the world from someone else's point of view, it gives us the opportunity for empathy and for kindness that we might not have known about. We'd like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but I hope they'll get us all something to think about in terms of our writing and give our listeners some special insight into Tommy Tomlinson. So we will now begin the speed round. What word do you love to work into your writing? Hmm. I, I have had three, three or four times where I've tried to get the word bodacious into something, and, and uh, usually with some success. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writings? I, I hate um, like the, the construction where it's like, Something that he, I hate, I hate grammar that's overly perfect and not the way people talk. Where's your favorite place to write? I've learned as a journalist to write everywhere. I have one particular coffee shop in Charlotte called Mugs that seems to have just the Goldilocks combination of the right kind of ambiance, the right surface, the right coffee, everything. That's a great place for me to write. Where could you never write? I get. I tell you what. As a journalist, I learned to write everywhere. I wrote on like airport runways, that sort of thing. I, I don't prefer to write somewhere where it's too quiet. I need a little white noise. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? To the 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 rules against the word ain't. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? The first book I remember. I, well, there's a book that I fell in love with that was among the first books I ever read called The Mad Scientist Club by an author named Bertrand R. Brimley. It's a series of short stories about these kids who do all these weird science experiments and, um, and sort of uh, rile up their small town. What are you reading now? Right now I'm reading a great book called The Dinosaur Artist by Paige Williams, who's an old friend of mine. She used to work with me at The Observer. She's now a writer for The New Yorker. It's about uh, the black market and dinosaur bones. What book would you like to have written? I loved the idea and the execution of Moneyball. Um, that, was, that, to me, was a great thought experiment. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I love mystery novels and thrillers. Uh, the Lee Child books are ones that I really love. I've, I've dabbled with that idea a couple of times, but... I don't know that I have the imagination to carry it through. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I'm about to start reading your book again. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Tommy Tomlinson. 
whose new book, The Elephant in the Room, is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can get signed copies at Bookmarks. If you'd like to hear more of me and Tommy in conversation, you can tune into his podcast, Southbound, where I was his guest. Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 15th and last day of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking to another Bookmarks Movable Feast author, Ariel Lahan, about her novel, I Was Anastasia. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.